Can you imagine what it feels like to be a Canadian soccer player as Peter Vanagas blows the whistle? It's official. Canada, 2000 Gold Cup champions. How does that sound? You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Neff. Yes, it's episode 51 of the Northern Football Podcast. I'm Peter Galindo, joined by Thomas Neff for our first show after a successful qualifying window for Canada. And even though we don't have that to focus on, it's still a pretty busy show, Thomas. That is right, my friends, uh, because we are back to our regular programming and we have a very big interview today with CSA President Nick Bontis on a pretty lengthy interview about a ton of topics, 45 minutes total. Canadians have now returned to their clubs abroad. We'll discuss that. Uh, we also you know, answer your questions in the mailbag. And a pretty lengthy uh, list of things happening in the news and notes as well, which uh, we missed out on on the window for good reason. So yeah, it yeah. should be uh, exciting and uh, pretty straightforward uh, this time. Indeed it will. A reminder that the Northern Football Podcast is partnered with Northern Tribune and Canucks Abroad. Check them out at northerntribune.ca and canucks-abroad.ca, respectively. You can follow them on Twitter at North Tribune and at Canucks underscore abroad as well. And if you are interested in sponsoring the podcast, then drop us a DM on Twitter at Northern Football, at Galindo PW, or at Thomas Neff, and be sure to follow us on there as well, if you don't already. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss any episodes. If your platform of choice is Apple or Spotify, then be kind and leave us a rating. And if Apple's your thing, then drop us a review on top of that as well. Okay, we are now thrilled to welcome Canada's soccer president, Dr. Nick Bontis, onto the Northern Football Podcast. Dr. Bontis, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Have you come off the high of the past week yet? <laughs> so uh, I'm doing great, Peter. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here, uh, have a discussion with you and Thomas. Uh, the high, no, man, and I don't think we should get down from the high. This is unprecedented. My, my actually, this part of my face hurts because when you smile too much, it kind of creases up to your ears, right? So I've been smiling a lot. And uh, it's good. It, it's good. And you know what? As Canadians, sometimes, you know, we're always a little understated. You know, uh, you know, it's very important to be humble. Right. But my gosh, man, we need to celebrate because it's not just obviously what's happening with the MNT, which is unprecedented. But, you know, we're also riding off the coattails of the WNT, who are who are gold medalists as well. So you put those two together and there's no other country out there in FIFA uh, that's done what we've done. 100%. Well, to start us off, Sunday's win over the U.S. was monumental in so many ways. Uh, for Thomas and I as media as well, that was one of the most memorable days we've had as journalists. Um, what was it like for you, though, to witness the game in your hometown and the whole experience from the stands and around the city? Right. Well, you know what, Peter? Uh, the game started before the game started, right? right. I mean, that, that was the best part. So mm. obviously there's footage in social media of the American bus arriving snowballs are being thrown at the bus you know people are yelling and screaming so you're, you're disheveling Berhalter and the boys already before the game has even started and then on the flip side our bus arrives and you probably saw the videos on social media there's yeah. red smoke white smoke balloons streamers I mean it John you know was on a video saying he had never seen anything like that in Canada it was like a, a proper European champions look you know Champions League football match welcome and, you know, that's when it started. So then you take that, you come into Tim Hortons Field, 
It was actually sunny, as you know, uh, and the sun actually made the stadium look look very, very bright. Yeah. The turf was in excellent condition. Nobody, no players have complained about the turf. So it was a little bit different. I think Iceteca in Edmonton, the turf had kind of frozen too much, whereas in Icecap and Tim Hortons, it was still okay. Uh, and then, you know, fast forward now 95 minutes. How do you script a game like that? Like you can't, like you couldn't ask, hey, Steven Spielberg, I want you to write a dramatic script for a game. You couldn't script it any better. The 95th minute, he scores the goal. Everybody goes ballistic and, and we all go home happy. And yeah, for me too, I mean, it, it's been the highlight so far that a lot of us uh, will remember. And you know what, Peter, I just can't wait until Jamaica. I mean, we're either going to know for sure or it's going to be pretty close that we've known for sure when the Jamaica game happens. And, uh, you know, we don't know where it's going to be yet, but, oh, my gosh. I mean, if the, the, as we continue with the vibe and the buzz, it, you know, we're going to go to new heights there as well. Hey, Nick, uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, pleasure to speak as always. Was there a possibility that there wouldn't have been fans present for that game? I know there was reports that uh, perhaps the game could have happened in, in Costa Rica. Uh, and obviously, given that uh, the capacity was reduced, uh, to 50 percent uh but it definitely looked more than than 12,000. yeah i mean 100 percent uh listen we're beholden to what the health authorities are telling us to do i think people need to understand right. that i mean we can say we want to play we can say we want to do this that or the other thing but they're the bosses and for your listeners who live in ontario you know that um a few hours after the game there was a change in policy that came from queen's park in terms of opening up you know, certain sectors of the industry. So things are always moving. I can tell you from my perspective, yeah, I, I was absolutely dealing with many scenarios. And one of them was that we would not be playing the match uh, in Hamilton. Uh, Costa Rica was an option, but that was among many other options, including actually playing the game in the US as well. So we didn't want to do that, Thomas. I mean, obviously playing the game at home is what we want. It's, it's, it's called home field advantage for a reason. It helped us. Uh, we are undefeated at home. Uh, FIFA has done research that shows over 9,000 international football matches. The home team wins 50% of the matches. So, you know, the other 25% are ties and 25% losses. You have a two-in-one chance better than losing to win at home. And then finally, you know, with regards to capacity, a whole bunch of things could have happened with capacity. And we didn't really know until, you know, days, a week before the game, as you know, which is why we had to have a change in policy for the tickets. We had to return tickets. We had to have another lottery. I mean, these are things that we don't want to do. Let's be honest. Of what I want is a full house. Because, Thomas, at the end of the day, this is a business too, eh? Like, do you think I want to give up 50% of the revenue? I mean, those gate receipts belong to us. Right. And I'm not going to tell you that. Yeah, we got so much money that we don't need the money. Trust me. It's been COVID pandemic lockdown for two mm. years. We need the money. So giving up even 50 percent of the revenue uh, is a tall order. To follow up on that, because you make an excellent point, uh, I have to say, you, you talk about the revenue and Canada hadn't had many home matches prior to the World Cup qualifying cycle started. But speaking, obviously, selling out uh, stadiums and selling a lot of tickets in November, my hometown of Edmonton, which you guys sold a uh, combined 90,000 tickets. You mentioned the revenue and the resources. What kind of resources does that provide and how are you guys using uh, those resources yeah. in the future? So let me start off by talking about the way kind of we allocate funding, right? So Canada soccer is really a conduit. You know what I mean? Money comes from other sources, for example, the government or mm -hmm. FIFA through us. And then, then we distribute those funds to the teams and, and, right. and the operations. Sometimes that money comes with strings attached, as you know. So 
for example, Own the Podium is, you know, via Sport Canada, a vehicle that is used to help fund Olympic athletes. So because we won in the women bronze and then we want to get in the bronze and we want to get in with the gold, that Own the Podium flows through our organization through to the women. But we couldn't, for example, take that money and then repurpose it for the men as an example of money that has strings attached. So with regards to funding, we have to look far in advance, Thomas. You know, we have a budgeting process. We just approved our budget just last week for all of 22. Um, And like any other large organization, you got to make estimates in your budget. So our estimate in our budget was that we were only going to have maybe a third to 50% of the seats full. Uh, So in some games, we would have lost that prediction. But in the Edmonton games, we did win that prediction. As an example to Peter's question, had the Hamilton game uh, gone down to zero fans, we would have lost that prediction. So there's always a variance to budget. But those expenditures, you know, the the Bev and John, John Herdman and Bev Priestman, they make a budget a year in advance based on what we perceive and project to be those revenues. So you're always looking ahead. It's not a perfect science, Thomas. Uh, Yeah, obviously, we want to leverage the money moving forward. Um, You know, we want to make sure that that we're towards the tail end of this Omicron version of uh, of COVID. Right, Thomas? I mean, people are happy because in Ontario, it's opening up. But how many times? Times in the last two years, Thomas, have we said, I think we're at the end. How many times have a we lot. said that? A lot. A lot. A lot. So, yeah, I can tell you, yeah, we're at the end. Jamaica's going to be sold out. But I, I can't say that. It would be irresponsible. Now, I think the other point, Thomas, is we got buzz. If we if we had uh, an Azteca, 110,000 stadium, uh, you know, in, in some of the urban centers in Canada for the Jamaica game, do you think we could sell 110,000 tickets? I think we could. That, that's how much buzz I think we got going on here, right? You you talked about mm-hmm. 90,000 sold in, in Edmonton. And of course, 12,000 is, is a low number for Hamilton, but it got sold out in whatever it was, 40 minutes. We could have sold double, triple, quadruple that amount. So that's what happens. Play on the field, performance on the field dictates the buzz all around, which then drives revenue. Well, speaking of that buzz, Dr. Bontis, how do you see the recent success achieved by the men's national team uh, in the World Cup qualifying game so yeah. far? I mean, I've, everybody's been been asked this. We might as well ask the man in charge of the Federation sure. himself. Well, obviously, <clears throat> uh, go back a year, Peter, or just a little bit over a year ago. You know, did we know the women were going to be close to winning a gold medal in the Olympics? I'll tell you, we didn't even know the Olympics were going to take place. Let's remind ourselves Very a true. year and a month ago. So there's that. On the men's side, we were now just learning that we would have to be put in a journey starting with all 41 CONCACAF teams, if you recall, because we weren't put in the top echelon. So think of the journey that we've gone through. Now, in the end, it worked out for us, right? Because we had momentum of play that maybe some of the top teams didn't. And here we now sitting atop of the table, one foot in the door for Qatar. And it's an amazing feeling because, you know, it's been a long time for Canadians. You know, we won't, you know, beat that message to death uh, since 86, of course. But so many things have happened, Peter. There's so many quick wins. Going to Honduras is a quick win. Going to El Salvador is a quick win. Beating the Americans at home is a quick win. Mm. Having shutouts that Milan has been providing us is a quick win. All these little, little quick wins add up together to this, you know, wonderful story. And and the last thing I'll say is, you know, one of the benefits of being in my position is that I hear from presidents of other federations who send me messages and send me texts. Everybody's freaking out. The the buzz is unbelievable. They're like, Canada? Are you kidding me? And on, on a personal level, I'm Greek. Okay. My parents came from Greek. I'm an immigrant, you know, son of an immigrant. I grew up 50 years hearing my relatives in Greece saying, what? You guys play soccer in Canada? Get out of here. You guys are a hockey country. And then I would tell them, no, 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 no. We're awesome. We have the best women's team. We have a men's team. And they're like, what? And now look where we are. 
we got one step in Qatar, Greece doesn't, and maybe Italy and Portugal don't either. True. It's just like unfathomable. Yeah, it's remarkable. And uh, what you say about the immigrants is so true because I myself am an immigrant. Uh, Peter's father is also from Peru. You look at this team, I mean, it's so multicultural. And you were talking about the Jamaica game. Given the travel conditions, extra couple of hours, and given that obviously it's in Central America, it had to happen in, in the East Coast, what would be some of the cities that, that you'd be looking at? Um, you know, and, and when will that decision take place? Sure. So uh, John, if he's not home at his house in Vancouver yet today, he's getting there sometime, I think, today or maybe maybe late last night. I can assure you that he will start Saturday morning. First thing. That's the amazing thing about John. You know, he gets up five in the morning west coast i'm getting messages and I, I i'm not even woken up yet so he's a very very hard worker he's very diligent and that's the analytics that he's responsible for with the technical staff so he'll start putting together you know what potentially could be a large large pool of what his roster might be to then dictate okay where are these players coming from what's their travel and i think the most important characteristic the most important criteria thomas is the health and welfare of the players period that's the number one criteria all these other things grass versus turf, uh, you know, indoor versus outdoor, where does the competition have to come from? Those are all considered, but really, as you so, as so well put it, you know, coming from, let's take Turkey, for example, like players coming from Turkey and land in Toronto. By the way, that flight from Turkey to Toronto is not a short flight to begin with. When I fly to Greece on vacation, it takes me a week to recover, just going in the one direction. Yeah. So you can imagine these guys coming from Turkey to Toronto, immediately going to Florida, then from Florida starting what was a crazy journey, right? It was Honduras and back and Hamilton and back and El Salvador and back in Toronto and back to Turkey. It's just, we as normal human beings can't fathom how many, how many hours they're sitting there with their, with their calves burning, their hamstrings horizontal, their backs probably killing themselves, right? So I think that's an important criteria for John. And then he will make the recommendation. So, so the recommendation comes from the technical staff. Uh, it does not come from us. Uh, he's the final arbiter of uh, of where the game will be. Um, I hope that answers your question. It does perfectly. <laughs> well, Dr. Pontus, you mentioned this earlier, but in Canada, most sports fans are into basketball, hockey. I mean, they grow up playing all these different sports. But Canada soccer did see a boom in player registrations right around the early to mid 2000s, which I believe the Federation attributed to the World Cups going on, on yeah. you know, on the men's and women's sides. So what is the plan to leverage this new popularity and, sure. and, and, and the buzz and whatnot in soccer, g given the success that both teams have achieved? How can yeah. you guys take advantage of it in terms of player registrations and all that? That's a great question, Peter. So let me paint the picture right now. I mean, pre-pandemic, we were sitting at about a million. Let's just use a round number. A million sure. kind of registrants, paying registrants of soccer players across the country. Of course, COVID did not help the situation. So I, I've, I've got to put that out there. Many provinces, and you know that players register through their provinces, as, as you know, who are members of Canada Soccer. Uh, many of them, you know, suffered, uh, you know, upwards of maybe 75%, 80% loss of registrations. You look at Ontario as an example. Um, kids, even if they wanted to register, they couldn't because none of the fields were open. You, you, they were not allowed to play, right? So clubs couldn't have house league programming. Um, even now in the last few months, you know, uh, you know, in the winter, you know, most kids play indoor, as you know, uh, in Ontario, and even that had restrictions. So we have taken a hit on the registration front. We believe that the momentum, not just on the men's side, but on the women's side with the Olympics as well, will help boost 
registrations moving forward. And let me also point out, it's not just about team success, Peter, it's about individual success as well. Because if you look at young players, when they say that they're basketball fans, it's because they love LeBron. Or in our generation, we loved Michael, right? Uh, same thing goes with hockey. You know, it was Gretzky, or now it's, you know, whoever the, the main player is now. What we never really had was a pool of heroes to aspire to. Now, we always had Christine Sinclair on the women's side, which is why we're one of the dominant countries in the world in terms of female registration, as you know. But on the men's side, you know, yes, I believe we had superstars, but in, in, the, in the general definition, you know, they weren't in the upper echelon that we would say we have now, right? So here we have real FIFA 11 superstars now. And let's be honest, they didn't even play at this past yes. uh, window, one of them. Um, but as his brand increases, the little seven-year-old, you know, Alfonso playing in the Oakville Soccer Club is going to say, ah, mommy, I love Fonzie. Did you see his Twitch account? I want to play soccer this summer. And on the flip side, little Christine, who's also, you know, telling mommy, hey, mommy, I want to play House League this summer because I love Christine. That's really what ultimately drives registration. So 100%, there's a halo effect. The men influence the women, the women influence the men on the team front, but also on the individual player front. We've got momentum now. And let me also add, Peter, it's not just momentum between now and November for 22. Think about the four-year roadmap we have to 26 this is it. as well. So that's what we really have to drive moving forward. Wow. Uh, that actually segues me nicely into this next segment because uh, we want to ask you, Nick, how are preparations for 2026 going? Um, sure. When should we expect a decision to be made? And, and is Vancouver back in the mix or is it just Edmonton and uh, Toronto? Sure. So uh, a couple of things. Number one, um, I want to point out that our general secretary moved on. So I think that's uh, that's public news. Um, yep. You know, Peter Montopoli, who obviously was very instrumental in growing Canada soccer to what it is today, who also had the experience of organizing so many of the events, you know, the 2015 Women's World Cup, going all the way back to the Youth World Cups that we hosted here in Canada. He's now moved over to FIFA and is heading up the organizing committee on the FIFA side. So that's the first thing. And that's a good thing, Thomas. That's a very good thing to have a Canadian, one of ours, who's on that organizing committee, because it's just as good to have Victor, a Canadian, be at CONCACAF level. These things are important. And just as a side note, you go back decades, Thomas, we didn't have Canadians in those positions, you know, at FIFA, at CONCACAF. And it's important as we grow our brand as well. The inspectors from FIFA came in November to Toronto and to Edmonton. I was with the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the delegates. Um, presentations were provided. Um, they were fantastic. I got no problem in telling you they were world-class presentations, both Toronto's and Edmonton's. Um, do I believe that we're in? Yes, but it's not my decision. It's FIFA's decision. FIFA has taken all those presentations, not only from Toronto and Edmonton, but all the other candidate cities in the U.S. and Mexico, and they are doing their analysis right now. What I've been told is that we should expect some sort of announcement at the end of first quarter, beginning of second quarter. So what does that really mean? End of March, early April, in and around there, which makes sense because that's when FIFA is also meeting for the World Cup draw, True. as you know, which is another thing we can talk about. Um, and I fully expect uh, Toronto and Edmonton uh, to be part of the complement of cities. Your, your, your other question about Vancouver, I don't know. Um, you know, it, 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 it was disheartening that Montreal pulled out because as you know, Thomas, all three of those cities were part of the original bid going back now to 2018 when they made the announcement. Vancouver had pulled out prior to the bid. But this is a challenge, Thomas, because it's like anything else. Depending on who the premier is, 
uh, of the province or the mayor of that city, it just flip-flops back and forth. I mean, you got Toronto and Edmonton committing now to 26, but we're probably going to have more elections on the municipal side and the provincial side between now and 2026. So those commitments have to be, uh, you know, they got to be written in stone. Sort of a two-part question here. Have you been made aware if Canada has been guaranteed a place, automatic place for 2026? And in terms of the draw, have you from the Federation been given an exact date yet or is that still TBD? So your first question, obviously that announcement hasn't come out and but normally peter it's because it normally doesn't come out anyway because we have another world to play, right yeah. so uh it's not that they're not telling us anything that we should know um am i assuming we're in obviously i think we're all assuming uh that we're in as hosts and i think it makes sense given that they're expanding the, the pool as you know of teams anyway for for 26. yeah your second question with regards to the draw the the, the fifa congress invitations are actually going out i should be expecting mine anytime soon so um, I expect the draw, uh, as you mentioned, to be within that first week of April. Um, it will be in Doha. Uh, and uh, assuming that we are there, mathematically, I think we can all assume at 99.8 plus percent that we're going to be there. Uh, you know, hopefully John will make it as well. But don't forget, he'll be coming from Panama. So that's going to be one hell of a flight for him, too. Uh, we'll know. And we'll, not only will we know which group we're in, uh, but it'll give us also a sense of who might be some potential candidates for friendlies, Peter, you know, over the yeah. summer and the fall, because you normally don't play a friendly, as you know, against a team that's in your group. Right. So that can start that type of analysis. Uh, I know there's big buzz right now about, you know, everybody's yelling pot three, pot three, pot three. So uh, we're obviously very, very close. Uh, a couple of wins uh, moving forward in our favor, a couple of losses in the African finals moving against them. And you could theoretically see that we could breach breach a uh, pot three. And then it's all about those bouncing balls, Peter, because let's say that we uh, let's say that we get a one with Cutter. I mean, that would be uh, really the perfect scenario. No offense to Cutter, but yeah, they're, they're not in the same category as, as the other uh, first pot uh, sure. countries as well. So Anything can happen. I'm excited. I mean, let's be honest. I think we're all comfortable that there is a dance to be had and we're probably going to be invited to it. But I really want to now start playing non-CONCACAF countries, Peter. Imagine games against, you know, England or, or Greece or, you know, or South American countries. That that would be exciting. Nick, uh, this has been a very big talking point in the last couple of years. And now that, you know, Canada will obviously have the Nations League in June and obviously the last uh, World Cup qualifying in March. In September and October, as you already touched on, there will be the opportunity to play four matches. You mentioned the countries like England and, and so forth, the, the, the top teams. Like There was a report, Nick, that came out from Argentina in Taste of Sports uh, saying that CONCACAF offered uh, the U.S., Mexico, and Canada to play against Argentina. Have you been made aware of this report? And no. what, what are some of the potential opponents that you're looking sure. to support? Sure. Yeah, so I have not been made aware of, uh, of the report that you're speaking about, but but Thomas, it wouldn't surprise me if Argentina was interested in, in, in playing. And, but that's the point, Thomas. You know, when when you got to understand, this is kind of like matchmaking. You know, think of a matchmaking piece of software. You know, if you go back, you know, ten years or whenever we were, you know, triple digits FIFA ranking. And we got to be honest with you, we weren't an attractive country to, to matchmake with, right? Uh, do you think Argentina was going to say, yeah, we want to play Canada? Okay, That would have been a little bit difficult. Uh, the 2010 match, 5 nothing. The, well, the, there you go. Match. And I do remember the Brazil match also with uh, Berdusco scoring back in Edmonton, yeah. even I think before that. But the point being, now it's a different kettle of fish because Thomas, 
it's not just FIFA. The world recognizes that we went from triple digits to what, what are we, unofficially 33 today? And potentially we could move up from 33 to get in the 20s if, you know, three more victories go our way and the Nations League goes our way. That's an entirely different conversation now in terms of, you know, what we would define as the elite countries in the world. And then it goes down to issues of logistics, you know, who's traveling, where, how do we travel? And then let me also point out, Thomas, we finally announce and we celebrate that we're in. Another discussion that John's going to be having with his technical staff is where's home base for Canada? Right. So home base is a very, very important discussion at World Cups, as you know, because home base can also dictate. Now, the good thing about uh, Doha is there's a lot of Middle Eastern countries that are very, very close by. And I would argue even in northern Africa and even in southern Europe as potential candidates, because you could get the Doha within an hour or two from any of those places. Uh, so, again, that, that that's another discussion, too. You know, as you get to your home base, what are some other countries that that are very near where you are in your home base? They would also be candidates uh, for friendlies as well. For sure. You you spoke, Dr. Bontis, with the Canadian uh, press in, I believe it was last May, and you, you were talking about if the Federation could not host games, it would be devastating, quote-unquote, uh, financially for the Federation. Yeah. Well, you've since been able to host many games for both national right. teams with large crowds present. You've picked up a couple of big sponsors. You have mm-hmm. the partnership with Fanatics. So how are things looking financially now sure. compared to then? So when you talk about finances as a not-for-profit sporting organization, there's two lines, Peter. There's the revenue line, which you spoke about, but what you didn't speak about was the expense line. In addition to, you know, uh, having unexpected benefits on the revenue, I guess what we didn't expect on the expense line, right? Like, I, I have to mention this again, you know, having COVID officers, having testing, I mean, there's been thousands thousands of thousands of tests conducted we got to pay for all of that you know no one is footing the bill for any of that oh and let me also because i mean i think it's public information now john can say i want this player this player and this player to show up but there's a reason why players haven't been able to show up and it's that same problem you know i mean some players can't fly over Mm -hmm. some players are in camp and then can't play uh, so it becomes a little bit challenging and, and and that's why we have to manage both lines it's very very important yeah you're right I, I fully expect that as performance improves now, that hopefully we'll get more attention from corporate sponsors, 100%. But guess what, Peter? The corporate sponsors, they've also had a rough two years. But let's not forget yeah. that. You know, Every industry sector has had a rough two years. So you, know, you look at a bank, maybe a bank had X amount of money for philanthropic contributions, and now that X amount of money has become 50% for them too because of what's happened with the pandemic and the lockdown. So the, the negative stress has happened on all ends, on the top line and the middle line. Our job is to make sure that we keep those numbers as close as possible, because obviously we can't go into a massive structural deficit because we'll never pull out of it. So we have to be very, very responsible uh, as a board from that perspective. A lot of people don't really know how much it costs to, to run a camp. So first question is that, how much does it cost yeah. to run a camp? And, and, and giving that, have there been any conversations to have the U20 camp uh, along with sure. the men in, in March? So, yeah, I mean, flights, obviously, accommodations, operational expenses. But the fourth one that we've never had to deal with before is is COVID, right? All the tests. And you need to understand that, you know, we might get tested once going on a trip and once coming back. The players get tested in t- you know, almost every single day. There's a big cost associated with that. It, 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 it's not insignificant. So that adds to the, uh, to, 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 to the unexpected budget expenditure, I'll, I'll call it. With regards to youth, Thomas, that's a big priority. 
I mean, 100%, because if, if you look back at the last two years, you know, we've been forced to uh, derail a lot of the youth programming. I mean, FIFA U17 in, in Peru was canceled, for example. Uh, U20s were canceled. So when FIFA cancels their competitions, it becomes very, very difficult for, as a board for us to justify that we're going to have a camp when there's no end game, there's no competition. I would love to tell you, Thomas, that we have the money to always have a camp, regardless if there's a competition or not. But we got to be very selective. And we as a board said, no, our resources, at least during COVID, have to go to Bev for the first team yielding the gold medal and have to go to John for the first, for the first team yielding the, uh, the, the top spot in CONCACAF right now. Now, if you, for example, Thomas, because you're such an awesome guy, said, Nick, I'm going to give you a $200,000 check right now today. Do whatever you want with it. You know what I would do, Thomas? I'd take 100000 of it right now. I'd put in youth programming on the women and 100000 and put in youth programming on the men because we have to get back into the momentum. And again, FIFA will guide us there because don't forget, it's, it's FIFA that has the competition. So you know there's a U20 competition, U17 and U15 on the girls' side in CONCACAF. So we're ramping up. They had their camps. On the men's side, yeah. Again, Thomas, there was a U20 camp. It was supposed to be in alignment with the men's team in Florida. We were excited. It was the first time we were getting the youth back after, after such a long hiatus. And you know what happened. I don't have to tell you what happened uh, with COVID. Many cases, obviously, uh, from the first team all the way down to the U20 team. So what does that mean now? we got to regroup. I've spoken to the staff in terms of what their plans are. Obviously, on the U20 side, on the men's side, we've got to regroup sooner rather than later because CONCACAF qualification is in Honduras in June. So we're hoping to have some activity uh, in, in the short term. Uh, whether it's with the assistance of MLS clubs so that we can help defray some of the costs across the country uh, in terms of domestic players or maybe having games in Europe to help offset the cost of European players or something in the middle. Uh, but that's the plan moving forward. And then again, with the U17s and U15s as well. Just a couple more questions for you. Um, and a similar theme to to what we've been talking about the last few minutes here, Dr. Bontis. But John Herdman, I think it was on the Athletic podcast, spoke about the positives that FIFA windfalls will bring to the Federation. And for him, that was a major motivating factor to taking the job. He said it was something to the tune of about $30 million if you guys qualify for back-to-back World Cups. Mm. Obviously, the money isn't in your coffers yet, but how does the Federation, we maybe talked about this already, but plan to use some of those windfalls? Well, I can tell you, we don't have that money. (laughs) I would love to get that money uh, because we would have probably no problem in spending it. Uh, But this is what we do in terms of the finance and audit committee we look at long-term planning peter um so yeah absolutely i mean if we know what the prize money will be or we know what the appearance money will be i don't want to think about 26 peter it's too far away so i mean i i think it's more important for us to look at at least the next 12 months part of the budget now that we have to change is the expectation that we are probably going to go to cutter and that there's an appearance fee associated with that uh, there's also prize money associated with Qatar, but you know that this is, this is a probability game, right? I, I, I'm not going to say we're going to win the World Cup, so therefore this money is coming to us, so let's do a whole plan of how we would spend it. I think that's irresponsible as well. But at minimum, you do a plan based on what you think high probability is going to happen. And I think we're all confident that we will go to Qatar. There is a pool of money that's associated with the men appearing in Qatar. And I can assure you what's going to happen is every single department in Canada soccer, and I'm not talking about just John's department on the first team, but Mauro Biello and Andrew Oliveri and everybody from U20 to 17 to 15 all the way down and on the women's side, Bev Priestman all the way down and on the marketing side, the communication side, Jason DeVos in terms of the development of the next generation of coaches, 
everybody is going to say, well, I'm going to put a new budget in, right? So it's our responsibility to make sure that we optimally allocate those funds across all the, the, the groups within Canada soccer that, that desire it. You know, referees that I haven't spoken about, futsal, para soccer, right? There, there's, there's lots. And I, and I think what's going to happen is everybody is going to think that they deserve some of that money. And rightly so, Peter. Right? Even the players on the men's national team are going to say, oh, we, we deserve all that money. You can't give it to any other department, which, again, is not right. I, you know, because I got I got to wear the hat to support all the departments of Canada soccer. And I got to be honest with you, I've only been in this job for, for just over a year. It's not easy. OK, it, it's not easy. No, nobody knows what the optimal allocation of scarce resource sh- sh- should be. You know, we're, we're, we're going a little bit based on history. A lot of it, Peter, is driven by our strategic plan, which is very, very important. So we're going to be launching the new 2022 to 26 strategic plan in the next few weeks our objectives in that strap plan also guide where we want to spend that money moving forward yeah 30 millions would certainly change the game in canada as you touched on i'm sure you're going to have a lot of pitches from every single uh department across the country you bring up a very important point because it's about paying the players many national teams uh in south america europe uh, and so forth uh, pay their players some obviously some national teams more than others and then obviously they distribute who gets paid more uh, privately of course but given that canada will be going to the world cup is the plan uh, to pay uh, players so what happens with compensation is that we're guided by long-term agreements right and those long-term agreements then also have to become part and parcel of the envelope for the budget right so to say that again we're going to be paying everybody more right now is is not responsible we don't have the money, but there's no guarantee that we're going to have the money. We think we are, so we can make some projected budgets. But this year for 2022, Thomas, is operating based on a budget that we wrote in 2021, based on the assumptions that we knew what was happening in 2021. So the right answer to your question is that these are negotiations that happen between our legal department and the legal department of the, of the players in terms of how they negotiate those compensations, also with feedback from you know the coaching staff as well so i can tell you being um the first time you know only a year in this job i haven't participated uh, in, in, those, in those negotiations because uh, i didn't have that role or responsibility in the previous years uh, in my role at canada soccer so i'm looking forward to it uh, i think obviously it's important because people deserve uh, to feel that they're valued uh you know and that they're getting paid what they you know what they think they deserve um and i think it's important for for for, for players to also understand that again our challenge is that, you know, we don't want to not play players. And, I, and you know, I don't want to defend, for example, the president of El Salvador, because that kerfuffle happened, what, two hours before kickoff? Yeah. Uh, you know, and it was, we didn't even know if we were playing and they were arguing about pay. But here's the, here's the truth. If there's money there that was planned to pay players, you got to pay the players, right? So when, when, whenever a club president or anybody in a mining company or a bank or anywhere in the world isn't paying somebody it's because there's no cash flow it's it, you know the money's not there which is the fault of the organization not being able to manage the finances correctly right and in this particular case with our organization this is our challenge we're managing cash flows that we don't know are going to happen when they're going to happen in an environment where in the last two years as as i pointed out with peter about 15 20 minutes ago the top line went significantly down and the bottom line went significantly higher, right? So uh, all I can tell you is what I believe philosophically, uh, you know, and that, yeah, yeah, people uh, deserve to to get paid for the performances that they've had. 
um, Nick, on the women's side, because we yeah. have to talk about them. Fury brought them up several times. Uh, they kickstarted uh, a brilliant six-month-plus run for Canadian soccer, as we know. Uh, Tokyo, uh, more players are heading overseas, uh, just like the men. Um, but they have some big tournaments coming up. What's your outlook for the women's program, uh, given all of this? Sure. Very, very positive. Very excited. I mean, I, I still remember where I was sitting uh, when uh, when that penalty kick, I think it was Grosso who took it yeah. in, in, in early August. I mean, again, one of those memories that's etched. I, I also have fantastic memories of Christine Sinclair's unbelievable hat trick against the Americans and, and the six second call, right? So that's the great thing about Canada. You know, we care a lot about our, our women team and our women players. And I think that's important to say. We had a celebration tour start uh, in Montreal and Ottawa, as you know. Um, I gotta be honest, it wasn't optimal, right? Because we also had restrictions in terms of capacity. It was kind of at the beginning of the next wave of, of, of the COVID lockdown. So we couldn't continue with that. And, you know, in speaking with, with Bev and the women, I said, you know what, guys, we can, we don't have to finish the celebration tour. We can delay some of it. So we can do some of it now in the spring uh, because you're still Olympic gold champions. No one's going to take that away from you, but let's hope that restrictions go down so we can put more fans in the stands to celebrate. That, that's the whole point of a celebration tour, Thomas. You, you want to play uh, in front of fans, as many fans as possible. So we will continue with the celebration tour. I'm heartened as to the NWSL announcement. As you know, they, they came up with a, with a new agreement. Uh, they raised, I think, the minimum floor for compensation from, uh, I'm just using round numbers here. I think it was 22,000 to 33,000, which of course is, is, is excellent for, for a league that's also growing, you know, because these leagues have to grow over time. Uh, maybe uh, your listeners are aware that Canada soccer used to fund uh, many of the women's players in the NWSL league for, Correct, for a yeah. decade or longer, right? So we've got to now move to a different model because in our strap plan is women's professional soccer, which everybody knows is the big elephant in the room. I surely know it. And we've got to actually put a strong commitment forward and a platform in place to have many of our women who choose to stay home, stay home. If the better ones, you know, want to start home and then fly off to Man City or Lyon or Paris Saint-Germain, then, 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 then all the power to them. But I got to tell you, and, and, and you guys know this, it didn't take overnight to launch the CPL. Okay. It took a long time. We worked on it for many, many years before we actually kicked the first soccer ball. And we have to start small and be conservative because that's the model in Canada. I'm proud to say that we are moving into season four for CPL. And you know what? That's awesome. Because think about what happened in year two and year three. And uh, you know, the fact that we survived having yeah. our league in year two or year three is a gargantuan victory, guys. Because had we launched CPL incorrectly with the wrong model, the CPL would have also gone belly up too. And do you think that we want to launch a women's pro league without having the appropriate model, given that our men's league couldn't make it? So I think all of these things have to be put in place. What I can tell you is that the board uh, is looking at right now at recruiting a head of women's professional football. That's a very, very important position. I hope to announce that officially in the next couple of weeks. And I hope to share the posting with you because what I want Peter and Thomas to do on my behalf is blast that posting all across the country, coast to coast to coast, so we can find that best female executive to head up that initiative for women's professional football moving forward. As you know, CONCACAF did the same thing, so I'm using the same model that Victor used. And you also know that that spear launched, springboarded Karina LeBlanc's career 
uh, not only in heading up women's football in, in CONCACAF, but now obviously taking over the, uh, the thorns. And that's what we want to do, right? We've got to build the female enterprise of football, not only in terms of administrators, but coaches and staff moving forward. So we're committed to that. It's in our strap plan. We will be hiring a head of women's football. That head of women's football will be putting together an operational plan so we can move forward. Really quickly on this, um, just because we're running out of time, otherwise we'd love to chat with you. Uh, longer. You had an interview uh, with One Soccer uh, last year, and you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, an update. Um, you mentioned uh, that you were looking, for, you were talking to um, private investors, uh, yeah. potential investors, yeah. about bringing in an NWSL team. Correct. Um, do you have an update on that? Yeah. I mean, look, there's been three groups that have approached us. Um, and all I can say is that we are committed to women's professional football, that that's what we're committed to. Now, to, to, to the fan out there, obviously, an NWSL franchise is one team, and maybe in that one team, there's 12 Canadians, let's say, whereas a domestic professional league is six teams, let's say, which could include 72. You know, So so the difference between an NWSL franchise and, and a league is, is one of scale, I think it's important to say. Um, it's what happened on the men's side, obviously. We started with uh, TFC and then Montreal and Vancouver, and then we migrated to our domestic league. And I'm not saying that that model should be the same model as the women. Maybe it isn't, maybe it's different. Maybe both can go down parallel tracks. Maybe one has to happen before the other as a proof of concept. It's very important to understand that yeah, yeah, there might be a lot of investors who are interested in women's pro football. And I believe that there are. I also believe that there's broadcasters that are interested. Uh, There's a lot of buzz. But you got to write the check, right? It's, you got to commit. It's got to be put down. And I think that's one of the very, very important roles of the head of women's professional football. This executive will be responsible for determining, you know, what is the correct pathway moving forward. Um, so it, it, it could happen in parallel. It could happen in, in, in sequence. I don't know the answer to that question. I can't predict, uh, you know, what will happen uh, uh, and when it will happen. My personal feeling is that I would love to have us kicking a soccer ball, uh, you know, in the summer of, uh, of 2024 on, on the women's pro front. But these things take time, guys. They, you know, even, even with MLS franchises, you know, a, a city can announce that they've paid the fee, but then they don't actually kick a ball till three years later, right? So it's the same thing I would presume in on Jemaine. the sell side or, or on the domestic pro league side. Hundred percent, and this is something we always say to listeners: like it's not that easy to just no. start a team, start a league. Like there are lots of building blocks towards that. So it's actually nice to hear the president of the federation back us up yeah, on this can one. I, can I add one other thing to you sure. guys? It's not about the federation. I think I, I, you know, our job is to say that we support it. It's in our strap plan. We want to execute, mm-hmm. right? But the other thing that's very, very important is when Larry Tannenbaum said, "Hey." MLSC, we want to have Toronto FC come to Canada. He was the one as a private investor, right, that had to commit. Right. When, when, when Bob Young said, yep, I want to support the CPL and Forge FC, it was Bob Young, you know, that, 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 that had to commit. We as Canada Soccer, our job is to sanction. You know, we, we're, our job is to come up with the minimum standards that are required, sanction the clubs and the leagues, and support them moving forward. So I think it's very, very important to understand what everybody's role is in all of this. Yes, yeah. you know, the NWSL is a little bit more complicated too because it's the NWSL that actually does the assessment of who they're going to give franchises to based on geography and ownership and all that stuff. And potentially we could have more control over a domestic league, which is 100% true uh, and supported as we've done with the CPL as well, and which we, we will do, of course, with, with, with the Women's Pro League as well. 
Well, that's all very encouraging for sure. Um, to close this out, Dr. Bontis, wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you this, but is there any quick update regarding the independent investigation into Bob Berarda right now? Yeah, so um, my understanding is that the trial has been delayed uh, in Vancouver. Okay. Uh, don't quote me on that. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I know there's been days that have been set aside and they keep on kind of pushing it back. Yeah. And, I, I, and I don't know why they push it back. Yeah. So let me put that out there. What we've done, obviously, is, you know, we've contracted with an independent McLaren's group. Uh, this organization is the one that's conducting uh, the investigation on our behalf. And Peter, it's a great question. Uh, but you should also know that I have to stay absolutely yeah. away and of independent course. from that investigation so that it's, you know, arm's length so that mm -hmm. when McLaren's group comes back to us and say, these are the recommendations that we think you should do as Canada Soccer moving forward. I would like to add, though, many of the recommendations that a lot of, you know, other organizations and other FIFA organizations around the world, you know, whistleblower policies and sports safe rosters, we've done those. We, we, we've, you know, we've, We've approved them, the membership as a whole, approved many of them in 2019. I encourage your listeners to go onto our website to look at all the policies that we have in place and the mechanisms. Um, and yeah, all we can do is continue to work toward, uh, you know, making sure that players are in a safe environment, Peter. It's, it's, it's 100% important. It saddens to me uh, what happened. And, uh, you know, I hope, to, I hope that I don't hear it happen again. But, but I'm also here to tell you that regardless of all the potential mechanisms that we can put in place to help protect players if there is an individual a devilish individual out there that wants to do harm they may find a way and all we can do is lower that probability as much as possible right given the circumstances and that's what we do i also should point out that that is also uh, one of the top priorities in our strategic plan as well is to bolster uh the safe sport roster uh, to protect our athletes and our coaches yeah. and all the staff yeah Really good to hear. Really good to hear. Well, Dr. Bontis, listen, thank you so much for your time. You've been very grateful with us, giving us more time than we allocated. Let's do this again down the line, especially 100%. once qualification gets secured. And, and let me also say, Thomas and Peter, congratulations to you guys. Because in addition to, you know, the buzz around, you know, the MNT and the WNT, there's buzz around you guys and what you do for what I call the whole soccer enterprise. So there's a very important role to play. Uh, you know, Peter, Thomas, and me, Guys, we love soccer, man. We breathe mm -hmm. it, we live it, we eat it. It's on TV 24-7. Yeah. We listen to you guys. But here's the thing. There's a whole world out there in Canada that has no clue that we even played a game. You know that, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's a problem. So, you know, this discussion about bandwagon, can people jump on the bandwagon? Absolutely, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Make sure you tell people. You want to jump on the bandwagon? You know, I, I, I got this experience firsthand in Hamilton. I invited some corporate people who never been to a soccer game in their lives, don't know soccer, don't love soccer. They know me and they know I'm into soccer. So they came. Guess what they said after 95 minutes? Lord have mercy, I have never experienced anything like that in my life. Oh my God, there was singing and dancing and it was 95 minutes and this doesn't happen in baseball, it doesn't happen in tennis, yeah. it doesn't happen in golf. This is awesome. That's what we got to do, guys. So bandwagon, mm -hmm. come aboard, man. Come aboard so that we can all go to Cutter. <laughs> all go to Cutter spiritually in support of the men's team and John. Here, here. <laughs> Thank you once again to Nick Bontis for joining us on the show. Uh, lots of intriguing tidbits there, Thomas. So what stood out most for you? Well, he did say, you know, that he wants a, a women's league up and running uh, by 2024 or a team in NWSL. Kind of hints that, that there is interest about all the, all the national teams 
asking Canada for a friendly. You know, hopefully, you know, this, you know, pans out, you know, in terms of planning leading up to the World Cup. You know, quite interesting because, you know, he talks about, you know, the uh, the budgeting decisions that, that have to be made. A lot of insights uh, that sometimes people from outside uh, don't get to see. And, and hey, when you have the president of a federation on, it's good to get those uh, questions answered uh, yeah. from the person themselves. So lots of really interesting nuggets. For me, what were, what's, what's really stood out is how the resources are allocated, uh, which is something I personally didn't know, and, and I'm right. sure a lot of the listeners didn't know. Yeah, that, that was something I always kind of suspected was the case, because I, speaking to ex-CSA employees, they'd always tell me, this was back before when, when the budgets were a lot smaller. If the Women's World Cup was on, then they'd allocate the majority of their resources towards that. And then the men would kind of become secondary. And then vice versa, if it was a gold cup year, but there was no Women's World Cup, then the men would kind of get the majority of the funding and, and all that. So on the subject of the women, the fact that the Federation is looking to hire like a you know head of women's football, to kind of paraphrase what Vonta said, is interesting. Because it's clear that they want to build on the success of what happened in Tokyo. They see that there's a growing interest in the sport for all genders, so why not capitalize on it? It would just be interesting to see if that person hired ends up working as like a sporting director of sorts, similar to what we see in other federations whenever you have like the men's national team and you have the sporting director working with the coach. Don't know if that would interfere with what Bev Priestman does, but I would imagine it would be more a general thing. The other side of it too that that really intrigued me, Thomas, was... When you look at the home match for March, as well as the 2026 hosts, I don't think it's a surprise that he touched on player welfare when he talked about where the game's going to be played in March, because when I hear that being bandied about, my first thought is, okay, they're going to want to play on the East Coast, especially when you have to travel to and from Central America. you got to travel from Europe. A lot of the players are from the area. I have a feeling that's what they're going to go with, and I don't think anybody would be shocked. And then for Vancouver, possibly coming in for 2026, he was coy about that, and understandably so. It is a fluid situation. John Horgan actually talked about it yesterday, and they're still very interested, so we'll see what happens, but it's quite late in the process to, to maybe put their hat back into the ring again. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. You literally took the words out of my mouth. Like, obviously, you know, we had this interview with him a couple of days ago from the day of uh, publishing. And obviously, this new report of Vancouver comes out uh, saying that they are interested in coming back in. It gives me the impression that a lot of work is still to be done for this 2026 bid. But like he said, it definitely does help that they have Canadian voices in there, like former General Secretary Peter Montopoli. Right. Because it evens out the field with the rest of the committee, with the U.S. and Mexico, uh, which, you know, are, you know, the giants of CONCACAF historically, not right mm-hmm. now, but uh, yep. have been. But yeah, honestly, for people wondering, like, I would actually love to speak to uh, John Herdman, you know, soon, because obviously he mentions that a lot of these decisions are taken by John Herdman, um, given, you know, like the, the where that match will be played in March. It will be a decision taken by him and, and solely him, just what the hint that I got. Yeah, it, it sure seems like it, for sure. So I hope you all enjoyed that. We will work to get uh, probably just as big, if not bigger, interviews over the next few weeks. We shall see. Uh, but moving on to the Canucks Abroad Roundup. We begin with a report 
from German publication Abend Zeitung, which says Alfonso Davies could be out until April or even longer due to his myocarditis. Julian Nagelsmann, Bayern Munich coach, did say late last week that Davies is feeling quote-unquote fine, but is quote-unquote bored as he awaits his return to Bayern. Uh, He will undergo more exams at the four-week mark, which I believe is next week, so we should know a bit more by then. But that is certainly not encouraging, but obviously not official news yet. Jonathan David started and lasted the 90 minutes as Lille got thumped 5-1 by PSG on Sunday. David had one really good pass for Tim Weah, who wasted the chance only to realize he was offside. Uh, Not a great day at the office for Lille. Kyle Lahren logged about 25 minutes off the bench for Besiktas in a nil-nil draw with Antalya Spor on Sunday. Atiba Hutchinson, however, was not named to the matchday squad. And Stefan Ostakio debuted for Porto in the 78th minute as they shut out Aruka on Sunday afternoon. Tejan Buchanan returned to Club Bruges' starting lineup, going 63 minutes in what was a pretty average performance by his standards after a pretty strong start to life there. Richie Larea made the Nottingham Forest squad as they defeated Leicester City in the FA Cup, but Lorea did not make an appearance as he awaits his debut. Daniel Jebison was in Sheffield United's matchday squad, but was an unused sub as they edged Birmingham City 2-1 in the championship. And down in League One, Theo Corbinu went 71 minutes for MK Dons in a 2-1 win over Lincoln City. They are now up to third in League One in what's a very tight race for the promotion playoffs. Justin Smith was on the bench for Nice as they lost to Clermont Foot over the weekend. That's the 10th time, Thomas, that Smith has made the first team squad for a game this season, which has to be encouraging. In Switzerland, Liam Miller scored for Basel as they returned to league action against FC Sion. Derek Cornelius started for Panatolikos in their loss to Pas Giannina on Saturday. And Scott Arfield, remember him, uh, started for Rangers in their 3-0 loss to Celtic in the Old Firm in midweek. He then returned to the lineup in the team's massive win over Hearts on Sunday and scored in that 5-0 victory. Harry Payton came on in the 81st minute to help Ross County beat Dundee 2-1 on Saturday in a relegation six-pointer. Jay Chapman was an unused sub for Dundee in that one, and County, as a result of that win, have now further distanced themselves from the relegation zone. Speaking of which, Theo Bear has joined St. Johnston in the Premiership, linking up with David Watherspoon. What do you think of this move for Bear, Thomas? It's quite interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, Obviously, he had a stint in uh, Norway and help that side promote to the first division. I was kind of hoping he'd stay with that same side. But nonetheless, I mean, he's he might be playing second division in Scotland next year. But at the same time, it is a pretty good opportunity uh, given the, the quality of level. 100%. And I, I think he will get opportunities right away because, yes, they're currently one point above bottom Dundee for the relegation playoff, but they've been offensively challenged all season long despite a really good defensive record, I might add. They've scored, what is it, 13 goals, which amounts to about 0.5 per 90. So every other game, they're scoring a goal, which is not very good. But their expected goals are a fair amount higher, so they just need someone to kind of put those chances away. And Bear could potentially help with that, even though he didn't have a really high expected goals with Hamcam last season. It was 0.18 per 90 minutes and about 1,000 minutes played. 
But what he did do was he was a very clinical finisher with the few chances he got. He had four goals, which isn't bad, especially when prorated over a full season. And St. Johnston desperately need goals. He's good in the air, has ball security. He gets others involved in attacking sequences. So that could translate well for him in what will be a pretty intriguing move from now until the end of the season. To close out the roundup, some pretty marquee news as Antoine Kuplant has moved to Rijeka in Croatia's top flight after having several trials in Europe. More on him in the mailbag momentarily. Clement Baia becomes the latest Canadian to join Hamcam in the Norwegian top flight, speaking of them. He'll join Julian Dunn, another player who was sorely lacking minutes with his MLS club. Now over to our Canucks Abroad mailbag which makes a triumphant return. Also, be sure to look out for my roundup on Sportsnet next Monday as that is coming back. So, Thomas, before I pass over the host mic to you, we're going to do a bit of a, I guess, a Nefbomb slash Canucks Abroad mailbag collaboration to address this first topic, which surrounds Stefan Mitrovic. We got a couple of questions on his current situation from Aru Yan, who says, what happened with the Stefan Mitrovic transfer and what does his dad mean when he says the agents ruined his transfer in his latest tweet? And Van S at Vans underscore Jets asked, any update on what happened with Mitrovic? Sounded like there was a good amount of interest in him, but nothing happened. So Thomas, based on what we have discussed and what we have heard, especially you, uh, it's quite the situation right now. What more can you tell us? All right. I will speak facts only. I'm speaking to the agent, which is Mitrovic's agent by contract. I've seen the paperwork. He represents the player. I also saw the pre-negotiation paperwork for one of the Belgian clubs. The transfer window, as many of you know, in Europe has closed. The MLS transfer window, however, is still open, and the Serbian league is also still open. Yes. Mitrovic could still be moving to Partizan and New York City FC, I'm told. And based on the father's situation, I won't get too in-depth with this. Again, I will reiterate I have seen the paperwork. I have seen the the contract signed between the player and his agent. And I am speaking to the right source. Whatever the father family situation wants to speak about it, it's in their right to speak about it. All I can say is what I know is legit and truthful. And if the father wants to talk about how this and that happened, you know, that's just speculation, rumors. I'm just focusing on the facts and what I know is is concrete because I've seen the contract, I've seen the paperwork, and I know that this is 100% legit. And we are telling the truth here on the show, and it's our journalistic instinct and our responsibility to always say the truth. That it is. And can I also point out this next fact, which I think is also very pertinent to the story. A lot of people don't know this. It is incredibly difficult to be a transfer insider in this sport. Why is it so difficult, you you might ask? Because situations in transfers are so fluid all the time. Because you have agents, you have families, you have players who may all have different agendas, right? Different clubs might come into the mix that were unexpected, and then that changes everything because you're like, oh, well, we actually prefer to go to this club instead of this club. So the information is constantly changing because... 
that's exactly what happens. So the person reporting it may come off as, oh, they're just kind of floating this out there and, you know, they're, they're making this up and, you know, they don't really know what's going on. No, they know exactly what's going on. The problem is it changes every second sometimes, especially during a transfer window when you're under tight deadlines to get a deal done. Some might be wondering, well, why have there been so many clubs interested? Well, there have been. In fact, even before the transfer window opened, I had been told that he had... I think almost a dozen clubs that were at least interested in him, if not more. So, of course, it's going to be a fluid situation once official offers start coming in. That's the reality of the situation, and it can change, and sometimes things happen, and it doesn't end up coming out the way you think it will, but that's the way it is. With that, Thomas, I'm going to pass over the host mic to you so we can get into some other questions here. The next question is from David K at David underscore Kiesman. Wasn't Borean and his pants coming to MLS? And another question, similar theme by PA Sir at Pierre Andre Sir 2. What's next for Borean with the Serbian winter transfer window still open until February 11th? Do you see him moving to MLS? Should he stay with Red Star and push for a summer transfer for a top five league? Looks like many teams in top five leagues could use a goalkeeper of his caliber, etc. Mentions Lil. Yeah, they probably could, especially after that goalkeeping display on Sunday. He has a deal until 2023, keep in mind, which is why he was reportedly asking for the deal to get terminated. But I spoke to a source within Borean's camp a couple weeks ago who said that he's not sure any of the teams in MLS would pay his wages at the moment. That could just be a negotiating ploy. But the MLS window remains open until April. So I suppose there's always time to change that, especially if he doesn't end up starting as many games for Red Star when the season resumes this weekend. Similar NFP source. <laughs> All right, then let's continue with this because we have another question also from David Kay who asks, do you think Atiba comes home in the summer? This also has to be taken into consideration that Atiba has said that you know, he has considered playing at home and is also retiring in Besiktas, the club that he's mostly spent time with. Also, the fact that Besiktas could offer him, uh, you know, some sort of a sporting director role or a club ambassador role. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, it will just, I guess, depend uh, if he is met with the right opportunity for him, right? That's it. Exactly. And he kind of already is the pseudo sporting director slash club ambassador if those recommendations over the last couple of years for Canadian players are to be believed. So that's really all it comes down to, right? If he feels like he can sort of do this like, you know, right off into the sunset type situation with Besiktas and then get a job there, then so be it. But if he wants to stay in contention for the World Cup squad and Toronto gives him a platform to get some minutes then why not? I'm sure he would be willing to accept that as well, especially if it means coming closer to home. Moving on now from Mark Caraglio at IggyFan2001. When you watch Liam Miller in Basel, you can tell he's a very good player. Mm -hmm. Why do you think he tends to struggle for Canada? Does he just need more reps as a starter? Yeah, I would say so. He was excellent off the bench this past weekend, looked super motivated and confident, obviously getting that goal. But that is why... Last week, I said I'm not concerned about Miller in general, just based on the Canada form, because he's doing well at Basel, and for the first time, he actually has some sort of consistency at club level. I think the fact his starts for Canada recently have come sporadically, and in very unique circumstances, with half the team changing each time, really doesn't help him. 
He did do pretty well against Jamaica and Costa Rica considering. The El Salvador game was poor, but the team had different fitness levels. It was a long trip. Plus, Miller hadn't played a competitive match since mid-December. He played two friendlies before joining up with the Canada camp. Two weeks later, after playing his last friendly, he's in for his first competitive game in six or seven weeks. So it just wasn't the most ideal circumstance. I think he's just very unfortunate to be in a position that's loaded and he won't get a consistent amount of starts. But these are the situations where you do have to capitalize. Matt, 12 Mark, wants to know, Adekuba has been great for club and country. What do you consider his ceiling to be? Does he have the potential to move to a top five league? and be successful at that level? Do you see him moving from Hattasport in the near future? I think what works against Adekubi is he's 27, which is hard to believe, but injuries have cost him so much time. Interestingly, he hasn't been hurt nearly as much over the past year or so, which I'm sure many people have noticed. I'd love to ask him if he's made some sort of major change to his regimen, because I feel like it's really paying off for him. But he's always had the quality to play in a top five league, but it was always a question of, can he stay fit? That all being said, I think he's definitely good enough for a top five league. Teams kill for two-way fullbacks like him. If Hatchespor get into Europe, I think he stays another season. And I think because of that, because he has two years left on his, on his contract, he will be cheaper next summer and it'll be post-World Cup. So he'll have two things that'll work in his favor in that regard and that he can be acquired for a bit less money. Not to mention he should be a pretty hot commodity after you would imagine impressing on the World Cup stage. Yeah, what really impressed me, Peter, is this January window, more than five Canadians were transferred. In the next January window, 12 months from now, Boy, oh boy, we could see many, many, many more moving up to better clubs and leagues. Yeah. Uh, which is very, very, very exciting. Mike Lafarve wants to know, this has to be Oscar Johnson's final season in MLS, right? I see a Tejan situation happening, signs in Europe in summer, and is loaned back to finish the MLS season. Oh, 100%, yeah. Consider he's only had like, what, 3,000, maybe 3,500 minutes at this level and is still 23 years old, it's quite impressive what he's done and in a position he never played before the June window, right? He came on the show and and admitted that. I I could see a European club coming in for him this summer, then loaning him back, much like what happened with Buchanan and Bruges. He has a deal until, what would it be, 2023 with club options for, I think, the following two years. So Montreal stands to make a decent amount without scaring off clubs due to a potential long-term deal. Because at that point, he would only have one year left. You can still sign him for a pretty reasonable amount, get your money back, maybe get a profit, pay Nashville their chunk. Then Johnston goes off to Europe and lives out that dream. Yeah, I could just picture him at uh, playing in Bologna. That would be that would do wonders for the mm-hmm. national team if he was playing week in, week out. Pascar Pelleche, what is your expectation for Ike Ufo in terms of production for Troyes? What would be the benchmark for his loan to be considered a success? Okay, first off, good on Ugbo for trying to get more playing time and even more kudos for getting that in a top five league. I know that Genk's coach came out and criticized him for maybe being a bit selfish. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but 
I mean, what do you expect the guy to do? He moved on to a pretty big club in Belgium, probably expected to play more. He's not getting it. Let him go get the time elsewhere. Um, and he'll get that at Troyes, as they have no prolific or informed strikers at the moment. Considering where they are in the table, they're 16th right now, I believe one point above the relegation zone. They are underperforming their expected goals by a decent amount. And Ugbo's tendency to get into quality positions might be the perfect tonic for that. So... I think if he can get, say, five, six goals from now till the end of the season, which is about what he had in, in the first half with Genk, I think that is a really successful loan for him based on what he has around him and the fact that it's going to be an entirely new situation again for him. Mike Lafarve, with Jefferson being recalled, could we see him in the March window? Similar question from Arion5. Do you think if Jefferson scores goals for Sheffield United next season and starts... Do you think he will start for Canada and he is a perfect partner for David? Wow, Oof. strong one from there. I don't think he gets called up in March. Um, as I have, I think both of us have said this actually, Thomas. Dual Nationals will probably get their chances in June for Nations League. In the CONCACAP tying league, as I'm now going to call it. So, unless they have a dearth of options at striker, and they somehow convince him to, to join up for March... I don't see it happening. But in terms of him starting, let's say he starts next season with Sheffield United and he's getting regular minutes, whether they're in the championship or in the Premier League, because it looks like they might actually get a promotion playoff place at this point. I think that he would be in the conversation to start, for sure. And I think he would work well with David, because Jebison has become more of a, a, of a predator in the box, which David is, but he doesn't... He, he doesn't like to lead the line and kind of run off the last shoulder of, of the defender all the time. Whereas I think Jebison likes that and he's not too comfortable dropping deep, collecting the ball, spreading it around, finding those pockets of space, things like that. Um, Jebison's also better in the air than David. So that could also come in handy if you want to go direct. So yeah, I think that could be a pretty good partnership too in the future should Jebison commit. TJ Rune asks, any word on Balu Tabla? <laughs> Was an up and coming prospect, I remember, but haven't heard much of him in a while. Don't worry. We all haven't heard of him. And uh, Dan Clark, any news on Balu Tabla? Oh, man, oh, man. It feels like just yesterday, Peter, 2017. This guy scored that amazing goal at BMO Field in Canadian Championship. Right. And had interest from clubs like Chelsea and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gets transferred to Barcelona B. The rest, my friend, history. Yeah, so this situation is wild, right? And this is where sometimes the dangers of hyping up dual nationals or or hyping up young players can come back to haunt you, right? Because you mentioned 2017. That is when he broke through. Didier Drogba was speaking to him about representing the Ivory Coast and everyone panicked, remember that? And then he eventually committed to Canada uh, towards the end of 2018 in Nations League qualifying. I think it was against Dominica because I was covering that game that night. Everyone was like, great, we have Davies, David, Miller, Tabla leading the attack for the next 10 to 15 years. This is perfect. Then he got linked to Chelsea and Barcelona, as you mentioned, ultimately choosing Barcelona. I think after Barcelona B got relegated to the third division ahead of the 18-19 season, I believe it was, that is when it started to unravel a little bit because he did pretty well there after a solid enough like 400 or so minutes spell to end the previous season when they were still in the second division, got some minutes for the under-19s, you know, and, and was starting out life at Barcelona pretty well. Then he got loaned out to Albacete in the second division from January to June 2019, 
barely played, and then the decline really started. Went back to Montreal, injury problems happened with his adductor and groin from 2020 to now this past season, which pretty much cost him the whole year, and it's affected his return ever since. It's really a shame because the kid was talented, but what's funny is the production in terms of goals and assists was never that high. But he was excellent at opening up space and attack and taking on defenders 1v1 and really making defenders think on their toes. He's still 22 to 23, so he has a bit of time to salvage his career, but losing the last two seasons has not helped. And as a result, no, there hasn't really been any news on where he's going to land next, but he has to find a place soon because, you know, his career is, is really gone downhill since, you know, three, four years ago when everyone was worried that he was going to end up playing for the Ivory Coast over Canada. CPL player for me. Are you on five? Do you think Justice Smith would commit to Canada during the Nations League, and where would he play since he can play as a central defensive midfielder and centre-back, and what's holding him back from making his first team debut for Nice? Ooh. Well, as I mentioned, I think, a few times, the fact they're competing for a Champions League place is probably what's affecting him not getting in there. Now, when I watched him in the friendlies before the season started, you could see how raw he was in terms of handling himself on the ball under pressure, in terms of decision-making under pressure, just in general, his touch and, and technique, things like that. The fact he has made the bench 10 times this season and is playing regularly for the reserves probably indicates that he has made strides in that department. But in terms of actually making his first team debut, I don't think it's going to happen this season. It'll probably happen next season. And he's still, what, 18 years old, maybe turning 19 soon? So... There really is a lot of time, um, but I think he would play right now as a deep-lying midfielder just because that's where he's gotten the majority of his minutes, but the fact he can play both is obviously advantageous. Borian's Pants, what players do you see making the most progress in 2022? Huh. If you have to pick one surprise player to make the World Cup roster, who is it? Okay, uh, Thomas, if you want to chip in with this after me, you may. My, my first instinct is... To say Theo Corbinu be making the most progress, but that sounds so obvious. So I'm going to go with Harry Payton. The injury in December hasn't helped him, but he's slowly rounding back into form, and he was excellent before that. He could be someone who makes some major strides this year. My one surprise player to make it for the World Cup is going to be David Watherspoon. I think he recovers from the ACL injury in time, gets into the squad. Herdman is still very high on him and is still in contact with him. And I think as long as he gets, like, say, a month's worth of games under his belt, I think he's in contention to get back in the side. But that's just me maybe making a bit of a bold prediction. One thing for the women's side in terms of who I see making the most progress there, just as a bonus, I'll go Samantha Chang, currently with South Carolina. Um, 21-year-old midfielder, box-to-box, really good technically, really good distribution. I could see her making some pretty big strides this year. So who, who would you say would be your player making the most progress and a surprise pick for the World Cup squad? Okay, hear me out here. We've seen in the past... National team managers desperately call dual nationals last minute and say, Kip, do you want to play at a World Cup, yes or no? Mm-hmm. Pretty enticing question. I mean, come of course. on. Yes. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say one of one of Canada's wingers. One of them. I'm not sure who. Maybe it's Hoylet, I don't know. One of them gets injured and that opens up the spot for a winger. I'm gonna say Herman gives the ultimatum to Jefferson. And okay. by then, he might be playing in the Premier League. By then, he might be a championship regular. 
Herman pulls his card. He's like, hey, listen, so-and-so got injured on the wing winger position. We have one more winger we can bring. Who knows? Maybe FIFA even expands the rosters from 23 men to 26. You never know. It happened at the Euros. I think Herman will play that card and say, hey, listen, so-and-so got injured. We need an extra winger. Do you want to play the World Cup? Yes or no? And I think Jefferson, by that point, will commit. Well, Thomas, the one yeah. sort of rebuttal I'd have, though, is he's not a winger and like has never really played there. So would he just be like another backup striker for you and, and just essentially another option for the attack in general? Like, like how would you kind of, kind of see him fitting in there? Well, well, here, here's the thing, right? I mean, you look at a guy like Ugbo and Cavallini, they're both central forwards, right? Mm-hmm. Herman will bring a forward group, whether it's winger or number nine. It doesn't matter because sometimes he'll only have two center forwards and then the rest will be wingers. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to say is he'll just he'll just add him to the forward group anyways. I see. Okay. No, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, th- but that's it, very it possible. Because he would be competing with Akinola, which, I mean, is expected to have a big season. If he um, does, yeah. Canadian national team focus at CanNT underscore focus. Do you think there's any chance Antoine Coupland is in line for first team minutes at Rajika? this season or do you think it's more likely that he'll be assigned to their u19 or reserve team uh peter it looks like uh this is a deal for the u19 yes i have to say i think this guy is overrated okay this is a jaquila marshall ready situation where if he if he made the u21 squad of stuttgart or uh, all the bundesliga clubs that he was trialing with i'd be mm-hmm. like okay you know let's see how that pans out but the fact that didn't pan out and he wasn't even one of the players in the CPL that even standed out, not even a nomination for U21 Player of the Year. Right. And forces this move to Europe in a league like Croatia, which, hey, it's not the worst league in either Europe, but it's also not the best. It's kind of near the near the bottom, I have to agree. And it doesn't even get a first-team deal. I mean, that's, well, so the, there are putting many, his career in jeopardy. The, the, there are many ways to look at this. Croatia is a breeding ground for young players. So that is one positive for him, right? Rijeka is a pretty big club in Croatia. They're actually fighting for the title right now. He's starting with the under-19s, yes, and it's understandable. He hasn't played in months. He, he did improve, I will say, towards the end of last season with Ottawa, but you feel like over the last couple years since he made his debut, he was a victim of, oh, this kid is super young and playing pro, he must be good. And people forget that these are still kids who will go through wild ups and downs when playing against grown men. Like, he's still 18 years old, Thomas. Kuplin's biggest problems for me when I watch him are decision-making and awareness. It's basically just all tactical when when it comes to that. He often slows down the game when it's not really necessary or doesn't notice a certain run being made. Things like that will improve in Croatia because technically speaking, I think he's actually quite a decent player. But working in his favor is... He is still 18, was a professional player, keep in mind, right? So maybe if he makes those improvements, he gets into the first team picture next season. This season, I think it's quite unlikely, especially with Rijeka fighting for the title and, and you know being second or third in the table behind Dinamo Zagreb. It, it, it isn't a bad move per se for him. And just because it didn't work out at you know, certain top five leagues doesn't mean it's not going to work out here. Sometimes going to a place where you maybe see a more clear pathway is the way to go. Cause it wasn't a guarantee that if he landed at Stuttgart, he would have ended up getting a first team place or even a spot in the reserves at Stuttgart. Fair, fair. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. 
And moving on to the news and notes, which, as I mentioned at the very top of the show, may has made its return. CONCAF announced details for the 2022-2023 CONCAF Nations League, second edition to begin in June 2022 with group stage matches, final scheduled for summer of 23. The official draw will take place on April 4th in Miami. Jonathan David and Alfonso Davies were nominated for CONCAF Men's Player of the Year. Well, Jesse Fleming, Stephanie Labay, and Christine Sinclair were named were nominated for CONCAF Women's Player of the Year. Canada Soccer announced their Canadian Championship schedule for this year. First round will take place from May 10th to 12th. The quarterfinals from May 24th to 26th, and the semifinals from June 21st to 23rd. With the finals taking place July 12th to the 14th, or around there. Continuing with domestic matters, Toronto FC announced the signing of Spanish forward Jesus Jimenez after confirming the acquisition of Mexican international Carl Sacedos from Tigres, with Jefferson Soteldo going the other way. And Steve Buffery of the Toronto Sun has reported that our junior is heading to Santos of the Brasileirao, uh, which has thinned out the right-back depth position just a few weeks before the season starts. Josie Altero is expected to join New England Revolution. The Vancouver Whitecaps signed their last season's top scorer, Brian White, to a four-year contract extension, tying him to the club until at least 2025 with annual wages of 400000 U.S. per year. The Whitecaps also acquired the U.S. national team's head coach, son, Sebastian yeah. Furhalter. Pretty interesting there. Uh, CF Montreal was in preseason action and beat Inter Miami 2-1 over the weekend. Uh, trialist Kwame Oua, who was with the Whitecaps, did not end up signing with the Whitecaps. He is a free agent. Uh, it will be interesting to see if he goes back to Forge or finds a club elsewhere. The CPL announced their full schedule, including the opening weekend, York United versus HFX Wanderers at York Lions Stadium on Thursday, April 7th. Atletico Ottawa welcomes Cavalry on April 9th, and there is a Sunday doubleheader with Edmonton hosting Valor and Pacific facing Forge at Startlight Stadium, which should be incredible. The CPO also said that majority of their matches will be on weekends, unlike this previous season with only 16 midweek matches uh, happening for 2022. Uh, the semifinal round will also be two leg ties instead of single elimination. And it will also be coast-to-coast regular season matches, unlike when the bubble ended in Winnipeg. Clubs uh, were only playing uh, teams from their same you know, part of the country, right. which I think is positive. Uh, what do you think of these changes? Because I think overall uh, they made the right choice, especially to start in April, in early April, which is the first time they've ever done Yeah, and that is, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the most important aspects of being able to ensure that there aren't as many midweek games, which I think was always bound to happen. But you also have to consider too, Thomas, that certain teams have actually been boned by this more than others. FC Edmonton is going to be hosting, I believe, three of the first four midweek games of the season. Atletico Ottawa hosts the last few towards the end of the season. And then it's kind of scattered around amongst two or three other teams. I think HFX Wanderers have a couple in there. So it's quite interesting that they gave them to those three teams specifically. Two who didn't have very good seasons last year. 
Um, one of whom has, you could argue, the best fan base in the league. Certainly one of the most loyal and dedicated. So no matter where you put the games, they're going to show up. Ottawa could get to that level. You never know, especially if they have a pretty strong start, which I anticipate they should. But that's really the one interesting part to me. But the rest of it was a no-brainer, 100%. All right, sticking to the CPL, Thomas. The Canadian Premier League and Canadian soccer business announced that the process to replace CPL commissioner... Dave Klanekin, who left the role in January, has been revealed. Um, An executive committee was recently formed from member clubs, and it includes Scott Mitchell of Forge FC, Dean Shillington, the chairman of Pacific and the future Vancouver expansion team, Ian Allison, president and COO of Cavalry, and Derek Martin, the president and founder of HFX Wanderers. What are your thoughts on, on the strategy to find Klanik and successor based on what you read and heard and everything else? What happened to the other clubs? <laughs> Pretty simple. No, it's true. It's what <laughs> happened to the other clubs? Not every club in that in that list is, is represented. And I'll tell you this as well. I was really, really hoping that they would bring someone from the outside. But I'm mm. not surprised. Why would they? They're just going to bring in someone who, agree, who agrees with them 100%. And their ideologies and their ideas to continue to tell them that they're doing a fantastic job, which in some cases they are more locally, uh, but it is it is it is what it is, Peter. Um, yeah. What really strikes me uh, from this uh, revealed process is whoever is the CPL commissioner will also be the CEO of Canadian Soccer Business, so it's kind of a double whammy in a sense. That's very true, yes, and I echo your sentiments 100%. Forge FC has signed former Canadian international Toronto FC and RSL defender Ashton Morgan, which maybe could answer the Kwame Awua question that you had earlier. Atletico Ottawa announced it signed two more Canadians to its 2022 roster in defender Zachary Roy and veteran goalkeeper Sean Melvin. Valor signed former TFC defender Rocco Romeo. And Pacific has confirmed that Victoria-born midfielder Sean Young and Manny Aparicio will remain for the 2022 season, as I think we all anticipated. Manuel Veth of Transfer Market is reporting that Luke Singh will not be heading to Pacific FC after all, and a bit of a twist there. Uh, The Canadian women's national team squad for the Arnold Clark Cup was announced on Monday. No Christine Sinclair, she just lost her mother, so our thoughts go out to her at this time. There are four first-time call-ups in midfielder Marie Yasmin Aloudou, who recently transferred from Norwegian club Klepp to Sturm Graz in Austria. Forward Tanya Boychuk from the University of Memphis and goalkeeper Devon Kerr of the Washington Spirit are the other two. WSoccer.ca at WSoccer.ca asked thoughts on Marie Yasmin, who was called in to the Can WNT camp, and generally thoughts on the roster. First thoughts, Thomas, when I saw the roster was very European heavy, I think as expected, because they are playing against European-based teams, of course, who are going to be pretty loaded themselves. And it was nice to see the, the first-time call-ups. Um, Marie Yasmin Danjou is, you know, quite an intriguing player herself, because she is someone who started at Marseille a few years ago. Then she went through Norway, had a pretty good spell there, and has moved a bit deeper in on the pitch. She was a center forward to kind of start her career. Now she's more of a midfielder. So it'd be kind of interesting to see 
how she fares in this tournament if she does end up getting some chances here. And a reminder that Canada opens the Arnold Clark Cup versus England on Thursday, February 17th at 1.45 Eastern, 10.45 Pacific, before taking on Germany on February the 20th and Spain on February 23rd. All matches are broadcasted on TSN. So that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening, as always. We'll be back next week in our usual slot, Monday or Tuesday. So until then, for Thomas Neff, I'm Peter Galindo. We will chat soon.